God is good, amen? Amen. And it is so good to begin what is the Easter season, like Sarah mentioned. We didn't get Easter last year. Obviously, we had Easter online, but we didn't get to have Easter in person. So I think that this Easter is going to be extra special. Do you agree? Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 12. And uh, we're going to read from 12 to 15. I know Pastor Sarah uh, began the service off with this verse and uh, these verses. And we're just going to read it one more time. I've titled my message uh, this morning, Your King Comes to You. So let's read John chapter 12, 12 to 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In 1859, a book was released by the name A Tale of Two Cities, written by the renowned author Charles Dickens. And the book opens with these famous words. I've got it up here on the screen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, and it was the winter of despair. While Dickens may have been describing the events that took place during the French Revolution in the late 1800s, he could have easily have been describing the events that took place on Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday, also known as the triumphal entry of Christ. And it is the day that officially commemorates the beginning of Holy Week. Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday. And every day, the gospel narrative takes us day by day uh, with events that have much significance. But they culminate in Good Friday, Christ's crucifixion, and of course, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. But it is in John's gospel that he tells us how Christ's coming is the fulfillment of a prophecy that took place 400 years prior. The prophecy uh, that was given by the prophet Zechariah that behold, your king is coming. He is humble and he is riding on, on the coal, on the donkey, on the colt of the foal of a donkey. After generation after generation of anticipation, 400 years since Zechariah prophesied these words, Jesus had come. He had come into the city of Jerusalem after generation of anticipation to be coronated as king. And while each gospel will interpret the events that took place on Palm Sunday just a little bit differently, Palm Sunday is one of those few events that is featured in all four books of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's significant because not even Christ's birth is mentioned in all four books, but Palm Sunday is included in all four books of the gospel. There's something about how Christ comes to his people as, as king that has long captured the imagination of the church. One is really quite not sure, is this the best of times or is this the worst of times? Is this a season of light or a season of darkness? Does Jesus' arrival, the way he arrives on a peace donkey, bring to us a season of hope or a winter of despair? 
I think it is intended that we, the reader, are supposed to be left a little bit confounded and confused by the events that take place on Palm Sunday. But on one hand, you know, it seems that there is this authentic worship of Jesus. That the crowds bring this adoration and devotion to Jesus that is real, that is authentic. You know, you have people waving palm branches, children. Anyone grow up in churches where the kids got palm branches on Palm Sunday? Yeah. You know, we have people shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. It is a it comes directly from Psalm 118. It is this genuine, real worship and praise of Jesus. But on the other hand, at the same time, you can't help but sense that something is missing, that the significance of this moment is being missed. Because if Jesus is indeed king, kings don't exactly look like that, do they? That when kings come, they come riding in with strength and with power. That kings in that days especially would come in on mighty war horses, not on a simple peace donkey. And with them would come this procession of mighty, fierce soldiers, not shepherds and farmers and villagers from out of town. If Jesus was indeed king, as he had come to proclaim, as he had come to announce, then this is not what a king should look like or how a king should come. And if there was anybody who knew what a king's coming would look like, it was those people. In fact, as subjects to the mighty empire of Rome, they knew a thing or two of what a king's coming would look like of how Roman emperors and and kings and governors who knew how to enforce peace with violence, who punished challengers and dissenters with execution, how they would come into the city. In fact, just days earlier, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, had come in to Jerusalem to, to, to oversee what was the annual Passover feast. Passover was a, a feast that already had liberation overtones. It is a a feast that celebrates the liberation from a foreign superpower. If anything were going to happen, it was going to be then. And so Pontius Pilate, who did not live in Jerusalem, rather he lived in Caesarea, which which means Caesar's place. He comes into the city of Jerusalem begrudgingly in in an effort to maintain strength and power. And he proceeds into the city, not from the east, which Jesus enters in on Palm Sunday. Rather, he would have came in, as all kings did, from the west, riding on a mighty war horse. If you are a student of history, you always know there's some dude on a horse, isn't there? You visit a foreign city, there's always some dude on a horse. And so... Yeah, it's the democratic people that we are today. You know, we look at the story, and we aren't quite exactly sure how to interpret these events because we are a people who don't really know much about what it would have been like to experience a king's coming. I mean, as a millennial, let me just say the, the, the extent of my experience with the king's coming is seeing the people of Agrabah make way for Prince Ali in Disney's film Aladdin. Like, that's all I know about kings coming into a city. We're a people who would rather elect our leaders to term limits, right, than have their leaders rule over us endlessly. We like to see our kings and queens dramatized on Netflix, gossiped about in front of Oprah. We don't really have that much experience with what it would have been like. But even to us on the surface, to our eyes, Christ coming to be king, riding on a donkey, doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really seem that triumphant in our eyes as much as it did to their eyes. 
But in heaven's eyes, this coming, Christ coming to his people as king, was as mighty a triumphant procession there ever was. For this was the moment when the armies of heaven invaded earth to coronate Christ as king. Not just king of Israel, but the true king of all the nations. See, the brilliance of Palm Sunday is that regardless of how you see Christ coming to you as king, you are being forced to choose. Will I receive him as my king? Will I bow my knee? Will I enthrone him as king of my heart or will I walk away? Will I turn my back? Will I say I have no king but Caesar? But either way, The message of Palm Sunday stays the same. Whether you are ready or not, whether you see it or not, whether you like it or not, behold, your king comes to you. This morning, I want to look at three ways in which our king comes. Not just comes on that Palm Sunday, but he comes to us every Palm Sunday. How he comes to us every time he comes to us as king. And the first is that when the king comes, he comes to call. To call us to what? He comes to call us to worship. See, John's telling of Palm Sunday, he references Zechariah's prophecy. Behold, your king is coming to you. And it comes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And the prophecy begins with this call to worship. Zechariah, the prophet, says, begins by saying, Shout loudly, O daughter. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, why, why should you rejoice? Why should you shout aloud? Because your king comes to you. Psalm 97 verse 1 says, the Lord is king. Let the earth, what? Rejoice. Let the furthest coastlands be glad. When our king comes, he calls us to worship. But not that our worship is summoned or demanded by this king. Rather, when Christ is revealed to a person's heart, that person's heart has no choice but to worship. Even those who in their arrogance and wickedness have been able to keep their heart hardened from the revelation of God's love in Jesus Christ, even they will one day have to bow their knee. And one day their their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our worship today is but a dress rehearsal for the worship that will come on the day when Christ comes again for his church and is revealed to us in his truest and fullest sense. And so this Palm Sunday, for whatever reason it may be, whether it is the kindness, the goodness, the mercy, the providence of God, the provision, whatever it is that God has been revealed to your hearts, don't keep it in but let it out. For what happens if we don't worship? Well, Jesus himself tells us here on Palm Sunday just exactly what happens. Luke 19, 37 to 40. Here is Luke's interpretation of Palm Sunday. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out in worship. What makes this moment so ironic is that up until this point, it was not the Pharisees telling people to be quiet. It was actually Jesus telling others to be quiet. 
that when you read the Gospels, you see when somebody encounters Jesus, when Christ is revealed to them, they see him and they say, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Keep that silence. Don't say a word. Why? His, because his time had not yet come. But here as Christ rode into Jerusalem, his time had come. And now it was the time to tell anybody and everybody, for if the Son of Man is not glorified, if he is not worshipped by those who he has created in his very image, somebody or something else is going to do it. These stones are going to start worshipping if the people of God don't lift their voice, don't rejoice. It's why when you think back to when... I'm going to have a, take you down a little memory lane here. When we went back to the end of the first lockdown, and for those of you who are here in person, remember when the first lockdown ended and the government was like, you can go to church, but you can't sing. And we're like, trying to be good people, you know, try to respect and honor our leaders. And we're here, and the band's playing, and it's, let's be awkward. Let's be honest, it was a little awkward, wasn't it? It's kind of awkward. It's a little bit silly. You know, it's kind of like, go into a wedding and you just ignore the bride and groom completely. <laughs> That's how it felt to me. You know, back then we were saying the right things, but now we can look back and be like, that kind of, because that's what the people of God are supposed to do. We're supposed to lift our voice. If we don't cry out, the rocks are going to cry out. And that's why I believe that no matter what the future holds, whether another pandemic comes right around the corner, and I know you're all like, please, Lord, don't. The gathering of the saints to worship their king in person will always be important because that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. We have to worship our king. When our king comes to you, your heart is being forced to choose. Will I bow down in worship or will I go away offended? As C.S. Lewis puts it, either we shut him up as fool or we fall down his feet. What doesn't make sense, C.S. Lewis puts it so well, is indifference to the Christ as king. Is being indifferent. Yet, isn't that exactly what our culture has mastered so well? Indifference to Jesus Christ? What's going to change their minds? What will open their hearts? I believe a church on fire, with passion to enthrone Jesus as king, will change their minds and will open their hearts. Because in a post-pandemic world, I believe the world's going to be watching the church closely. Is he really your king? Is this really important to you? When the king comes, he calls us to worship. Second, when the king comes, he comes to confront as king, you see, God will never hesitate to confront us when he finds something in us that doesn't seem right. As the writer of Hebrews says, God disciplines those he loves. The brilliance of Christ's coming is that as king, he does two things simultaneously. He both draws our hearts, and at the same time, he challenges our hearts, doesn't he? The conflicting question as Jesus came into the city as king was, who is this man? Who is he? That's what Matthew said, that the whole city was stirred up by his arrival. The whole city, a half a million people. Jerusalem was about sixty to 70,000, and at Passover, it would swell to half a million. The whole city, by his arrival, was stirred up and said, who is this man? 
This wasn't a question of curiosity. This was a question that demanded an answer. They were stirred up the same way Matthew said that the city was stirred up when the wise men came into the city and said, where is it that we may find the one born king of the Jews? When Christ comes, he comes to us confronting us with the question, who am I to you? Who am I to you? Over and over again, when you read the Gospels, you see there are people who are come face to face with Jesus and they are confronted with this question, who is he? Who is he to me? Peter, most famously, he's got his up and down moments, but one of his up moments was when famously asked by Jesus, who is it that you say that I am? Well, others say this, others say that. I say that you are the Christ. The Lord, Christ, the Messiah, the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one, king, you are king. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, when in prison, has this moment of doubt, sending his followers to ask Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? It's kind of one of those passive-aggressive, you know, like microaggressions, where it's like, who are you? Like, who are you? I thought you were the one. What does Jesus say to John? He's, Jesus answered them in Matthew eleven four 4-6, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. How much more evidence do you want of who I am? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by how I come as king. It is no secret that the Jews were a people who longed for a king. It was no secret to Jesus it was no secret to Pontius Pilate that they wanted somebody who could stand up against Rome and liberate them of this endless oppression. And they had seen God do it once before, right? In Egypt. They had seen that God, what God could do and believed that he could do it again. And this longing for a king could be traced all the way back to the days of the prophet Samuel. And the people looked around at all the other nations as they came into the, the land of Canaan and saw all these other people with kings who could rule over them, who could bring them prosperity, who could make them great in the eyes of others. And they said, we want that. I want that. We want that. We want a king who can fight our battles. We want a king who can make us great. And to Samuel's confusion, the Lord's like, give them what they want. 1 Samuel 8 to 7 says, The Lord told them, Tim, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Later on, he says in verse 22, just give them a king. See, it is both beauty and tragedy that on Palm Sunday, Jesus came to his people as king, fully knowing that they would do to him once again that they would do that's the same thing that they had done before. Reject him as for being not the king that they wanted him to be. What stirred the city so much was that his arrival had awoken a messianic energy that they had not seen in some time. Palm branches were not just something cute to give to children. You know, they had messianic overtones. They were exactly what the people did when Judas Maccabee, who had the greatest nickname in probably the whole Bible, the Hammer, Man, I would love it if you just be like, there's Pastor Terry, the hammer. I'd be like, yes. He, he has given the hammer for leading a revolt against the Seleucid Empire. And when he returned to Jerusalem, the people waved palm branches 
and is just celebrating that, that, that this man had brought this military victory, that he had liberated them physically from their oppressors. These shouts of Hosanna came from Psalm 118, which just means save us now. Save us. Liberate us. If you read Psalm 119, I encourage you to go home and read it. It talks about the nation of Israel being surrounded by their enemies, and the Lord cuts their enemies off. And they say, save us now, we pray. Save us. Jesus, we want you to be a king who can fight our battles for us, just like all the other nations have kings who can fight their battles. And what does God do? He gives them a king who will confront these desires. That instead of coming in from the West, as Roman empires did, as, as kings did, Jesus comes in from the East, not riding on a mighty war horse, but on a peace donkey. Now, tradition says that this donkey would have been so small that the feet of Jesus would have dragged on the ground as he came riding into the city. You get this image that this is not that triumphant in human eyes. There's no royalty to greet him. Just some farmers taking off their clothes and laying them on the ground and palm children waving palm branches. But blessed is the one not offended by my coming. Amen? Blessed is the one who is not offended at my coming. You see, if we desire God to be the sort of king made in our image, in our own understanding, when Jesus comes to us on a lowly donkey in humility, that will offend you. When Jesus is enthroned king on a cross with nails in his hands and his feet, humiliated before the empire, but humiliated before the people, chanting crucify, that will offend you. But if you believe that Christ came not to bring an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom, to establish not a temporal peace from an earthly enemy, but an eternal peace from a spiritual enemy, if you believe the king has come to you to win the war, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, yes, he will still confront you, but his confronting will not offend you. Rather, his confronting will lead you to repentance and acknowledgement that you are the Christ. You are king. And that will be a king who comes, as Zechariah says, righteous and victorious. So that brings us to our final way in which Christ comes. And he comes to claim kingship over our hearts. See, when Christ came that day as king, there were some who were not just offended by his coming. There were some who needed to push back against his coming. If we jump ahead a few days into Holy Week, what we see is Jesus being confronted by three representatives of principalities and powers. That is the high priest, the, the Jewish religious leaders, Herod the king, and Pontius Pilate. And they will all pose Jesus the question, who are you? Who is this man? And each time they will incidentally, unintentionally claim Jesus as king. If we jump ahead in the week, we jump to Thursday, when Jesus is arrested, he is brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leader, council of leaders. And the, they place Jesus on trial, and it is nothing more than a, a mock trial, because this trial is all about getting Jesus to do one thing, to claim kingship. For if he claims to be king, then the Romans will have no other choice but to come in and crush Jesus. Because the claim to be king, other than Caesar is king, Caesar is Lord, to say Jesus is Lord, to claim yourself as king, was that came with a penalty of blasphemy, it was a charge of blasphemy, and blasphemy came with a penalty of death. And Caiaphas, the high priest, who ironically had just, when 
this is kind of an interesting side note. When Pontius Pilate would come into Jerusalem for Passover, he would bring with him the robes of the high priest. These robes were kept in lock and key, held with, by the Roman Empire. Does that not speak something? And he would come to give Caiaphas his high robes, his high priestly robes, so he could perform his religious duties. Caiaphas in his high priestly robes asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 64, you have said so. You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at that moment, Caiaphas rips these robes that were given to him that were held under lock and key. He rips his robes and says, what further evidence do we have of this man's death? And they began to spit on him and slap him and say, prophesy, king, prophesy. And they send him to Pilate on the charge of insurrection. But since this is not a legal matter, that is, for Pilate, he sends him to Herod, who is in charge of this jurisdiction. And Herod the king is a guy, is a man who likes religious guys. I mean, he'll cut your head off like he did with John the Baptist, but he likes them. And he wants Jesus to perform a trick, to do a miracle. He wants Jesus to sort of entertain him with his power. Jesus, of course, course, does not comply or answer his questions. And so what does Herod do? He dresses Jesus up as king. He puts him in his robes, mocking him, and sends him back to Pilate. And these two men, Herod and Pilate, were bitter enemies. And it says that that day they became the besties, the best of friends, because of this mockery of Jesus. By dressing him up as king, this certainly entertained Pilate. That when he's returned to Pilate, Pilate's methods are a little more straightforward, and he gets right to the point and asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers him, my kingdom is not from here. He is, yes, it's for here, but it's not from here. And Pilate takes Jesus away, has him beaten and scourged with a punishment that nearly kills him. And the men that whipped him and beat him placed a crown of thorns upon his head. And they kneeled before him in mockery, crying, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And finally, having enough of the crowd's constant badgering and calling for his crucifixion, Pilate brings Jesus out before the, before the crowds, whipped and beaten, dressed in a purple robe, wearing a crown of thorns on his head, and he says, Behold your king. Behold your king. But Caiaphas, the high priest, responds, He is not our king, for we have no king but Caesar. When Christ comes to us as king, he will make no efforts to conceal his identity. This is who your king is. Yes, he is a king, righteous and victorious, seated at the right hand of the Father, clothed in majesty, but he is a king who is clothed with robes of mockery, beaten and scourged, wearing a crown of thorns on his head, bearing the marks of nails in his hands and feet. Behold, your king comes to you, Zechariah cried. And like a king does, he comes to claim kingship over your heart, over your life, over your everything. He comes to be the king of it all. Can we look at how Christ comes to us as king? 
Can we see him, not how we want to see him, but see him exactly as he comes to us? Because if we can't, if we can't accept him as the king that he is, we will be like Caiaphas saying, we have no king but Caesar. We will wash our hands of him, of his rule and reign in our life. But depending on how one sees Christ, his coming to you today will either be the best of times or the worst of times. But regardless today, if it is true that he is king, we are faced with a choice. Will we bow down at his feet or will we walk away? Because there is no such thing as indifference when it comes to Christ coming to us as king. But he still comes. He comes to you today to bring a kingdom, not of this world, but a kingdom from heaven. A kingdom that will come to your heart to bring healing and peace restoration, reconciliation between you and God, to bring a a kingdom of power, to give you authority that everything Christ did in his name, you can do the same to fight back the powers and principalities of darkness. You see, no, no matter how many times you and I have rejected him as king, he is still a king who will come again and again and again and again to your hearts never once forcing entry for he is not a king who comes with coercion and force rather he is the king who comes and he knocks at the door of your heart so that you might open the door and welcome him into your heart as king so this Palm Sunday will you allow him to both draw your heart today and yet at the same time challenge your heart Would you consider today not the ways that you necessarily need the king to come while he will do that, but today now as you stand to your feet, let's just today take a moment to pray and ask for God to come in the way that the king desires to come to you today. Maybe today it's to grow your heart with love and tenderness towards him. Maybe today he wants to come to call in you a greater worship, that if there's a dullness, there's an insensitivity. He wants to come to make your heart sensitive, to soften your heart, to fill your heart with worship. Maybe he wants to confront idols or hardened hearts. Maybe there's false hopes or images of who you think God is or who he should be, and he wants to confront those. Maybe today there are strongholds in your life, and he wants to claim kingship over those areas, over those struggles, over the powers and principalities that are war within you. Whatever it is today, pray and ask the king to come the way the king comes to you. Behold, behold, our king has come. So let us pray. Father, we thank you today that you so love the world that even in our hardened hearts, even in our selfish ways, you still came because you came to save us from our sins. You came to bring a kingdom that we did not earn, a kingdom that we did not deserve. And yet you still came. Today, on this Palm Sunday, is a moment to stop and remember the day that you were coronated as king. And it is, not, it is the most unique coronation in all of history. There's never been a king who has been coronated in such a manner. But you did. That is how you came, lowly, humble, today now we look at you today and we want to receive you as king in our hearts one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess but today we will not wait for that one day we will do it today 
We will choose this day of whom we will serve, and we will serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are king. Who are you, Jesus? You are the King of kings. You are the Christ, and you are the Christ of my heart today. God, we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in my heart as it is in heaven, I pray. God, would you draw our hearts to worship today? May we worship this Easter season, God, like we haven't in some time. Oh, God, if the church doesn't cry out, who's going to do it? We know someone or something will. So we'll do it, God. We'll worship you because you are our king. God, draw our hearts, but at the same time, confront us. Confront that which is not of you. Confront our false expectations. Confront our arrogance and our pride and our self. Whatever it is, God, that you need to confront, confront it so that we can be led to repentance today and acknowledgement. God, where our strongholds, where the powers and principalities have for far too long waged war against ourselves, against our children, against our, 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 our homes, whatever it be, our relationships. God, for far too long, God, we claim kingship, Lord. You're, you are the king, and you are victorious, and you are righteous, and you will come, and you will overthrow as you, it is finished. Everything that we desire Jesus to do in his name, it is finished. So let us help stand here and have faith. And even though you may not come in this moment the way we imagine a king might come in this moment, we will have faith. We will stand secure because you are king. You are king. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus. Well, I'm just going to ask you to be seated for a moment because we're going to sing a song right now. This is one of the songs off of our uh, Life Center's uh, album we're releasing for the Easter season. So let's just take a moment to uh, reflect and, uh, and worship as we close this service out. <laughs> 